In the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast, this is Rob in the Highlands Bunker studio, and this is the Highlands Bunker podcast for this week. Um, before we get started, I wanted to give a quick shout out to uh, the Delaware Historical Society. Um, they run a pretty cool Twitter account uh, called This Is DE History. It's at This Is DE History. Um, and they put trivia on there in the morning when I happen to be up. Uh, so I'm always answering like dorky historical trivia, which is something I would do. Uh, and they've sent me a, a bunch of wonderful books. Uh, one on Alan McLean from Smyrna, Revolutionary War Hero. Uh, this guy, Thomas Welch. I'd like to get in touch with this guy, if anybody can get me in touch with him. Uh, I got a beautiful book for Carl, Delaware's History Through Its Governors. Uh, I got a great uh, book about a famous Wilmington potter, Wil- uh, William Hare. So uh, I just want to thank those guys. I'm a big uh, I'm a big history nut and a local history nut. So, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate the uh, the books, and I appreciate the Twitter account, and I hope everybody goes uh, to the account to check it out. Joining me tonight uh, is a friend of mine. Uh, he is running in my home city, and uh, in RD2 in Wilmington. Uh, he is James Taylor. Hello, James. How are you? I'm well, Rob. Thanks for having me on tonight. Well, it's great to have you on. Um before we get into like the political stuff, I always ask people like where they grew up, how how was it, how did it um, uh, sort of steer their life in whatever way, how they got to be this way. But my question, I want to make sure you mix in something because do you remember when we first met the first time we met? Because I, I don't really either because I don't I can't place the st- I can't place the the setting, but I remember. Um, asking you about your sweatshirt. You were wearing a Berkeley School of Music sweatshirt. And I was fascinated by that. We were talking about music earlier. So I'm really interested in how you found your way to like this very famous music conservatory as well. But anyway, yeah, just give everybody your background, um, where you're from, and uh, yeah, how you grew up and what it was like. So in a nutshell, you know, I'm a native Wilmingtonian. I grew up over on the west side of Wilmington at Six and Harrison. And so, like, I was going to, you know, the community centers over there. But for me, it was, it was, I don't know, actually, I think this is many people's story in Wilmington, right? Like, you know, if you are familiar with the Great Migration, you know, like, what those patterns look like. All my family came due north, pretty much, from Virginia and North Carolina. And, like, they settled here in the 50s. And so I had like a huge extended family and like they're all in the, uh, you know, I guess you would say like their secondary careers. They were, they're all clergy folk and and ministers. So like music goes hand in hand with that. And that's where the musical connection was. They also all worked like their day job. They worked in education. My grandmother was a preschool teacher at, uh, at Hilltop. Um, my, both of my great aunts did the same. One actually rose to run the program over there under J Street. And so, like, you know, I came up in that sort of atmosphere. Another thing that's part and parcel of, you know, this sort of old school African-American experience is that, you know, different families are like friends with each other. And like everybody's really close knit. So if someone's having a hard time, you reach out. 
and you do things. And so that's where like this sort of community mindedness came from. You know, I don't know if like a lot of folks know, like Jay Street kind of learned at the knee of like Lewis L. Redding and like folks that worked on Brown versus the board. And so I got it kind of like, you know, secondhand from him between, you know, watching my grandmother and people like that take in folks that were homeless or like give people food that needed it or watch folks' kids so that like they could go to job interviews or work or whatever. And, you know, just being around the hilltop, watching that happen in a more institutional fashion, watching Jay Street sue like the Red, Red Clay School District and things like that to make sure that we could have an education and not be like harassed at school. It, it kind of came full circle growing up though, you know, music was a place where you could, uh, you could escape a lot of the horrible things that you were dealing with at some level or another. And so for me, it kind of just like made sense. You know, I had a very different experience at AI than like some of our more progressive friends and you know, by the time I was done with high school, I was so over just like institutional school that I decided to leverage the musical background I had and just, you know, try to make some money in that area and bring that back and, and help engage in some of the community service work that I basically been witness to my entire life. Um, and luckily, I've been taking lessons at the Christina Cultural Arts Center the entire, well, not the entire time in high school, like the second half of high school, taught myself music theory and like, you know, applied to Berkeley and got in. And like the rest is is pretty much history. But that was the idea, you know, get a job as an A&R, make a, a ton of money and do what LeBron James is doing now. Just bring it back to the community and, and make capital injections where needed. So hopefully, like, hopefully that answers your question. It it does it does like uh, what uh what type of music were, did you play what what uh, what instrument what 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 did you get into theory wise I'm we're gonna geek out a little bit on this but I'm this is like my thing and I I'm actually sad we were talking before this and um super producer Carl is uh, is not able to join tonight he's he's out traveling uh, but he uh, is traveling with his family and I mentioned that his father is uh is a professor of music and professor of the cello. And so uh, we're going to geek out on a little music now. So we're going to that's what, that's just what we're doing. So yeah. So what what were you what what did you how what were you, what did you get into? How, how you know that that kind of stuff? Did you... So at at Berkeley, at Berkeley, everyone at least back then, because like there are different, you know, every every as with any institutions, there are like different iterations across the generations, right? And so at at the time that I was at Berkeley, we were at the tail end of this iteration where everybody who went to Berkeley was an arranger. And so I was a vocalist. You know, you go into Berkeley and you have a principal instrument and like you take lessons on it pretty much the whole time you're there. You take uh, four music theory classes across like four semesters. You take at least like two or three arranging classes um you take four ear training classes so you have like a solid core music curriculum and then my major was music business and i minored in like liberal arts at berkeley which was really interesting um so 
Well, actually, what ended up happening was I ended up double majoring in music business and then something called professional music, which was just like this potpourri sort of deal. They let you cherry pick the, the school and like it's a jazz school. Right. So, well, it's a contemporary music school that's built on a jazz foundation. And so, like, you know, they're all like jazz cats. They don't care. Like there are prerequisites, but not really. You can go in and be like, hey, let me into this class and go to the dean and, and get a population waiver if you need some if you needed one. And so, like, I really took advantage of that. I tried to get everything I could and can everything that I got when I was at Berkeley. So I took like all the music business courses that I could. I took all the arranging courses that I could, you know, writing for strings, different classes on writing for horns, groove writing, music production classes. I was a songwriting major for a little while. And so like, you know, to answer your question, I I did just about every type of music. The only thing that I wouldn't sing was like hard rock because it's really strenuous on the voice, kind of in some of the ways that gospel is. But like, you know, gospel bends a little bit more. Hard rock, it's like very straight ahead. It, if you're not careful, like you can shred your your vocal cords. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, man. I love all that stuff. I, I um, you know, I, I'm into music myself, but not technically into music, you know, like that. Um, so it's just fascinating to me. Um how like you took it on not only did you study it but you were able to go to a place where you were able to get a pretty broad sort of liberal arts education within this concentration on music and art which is uh, pretty cool yeah i mean like my this is like where i was first introduced to you know some of the progressive things that we talk about every night you know on like the wfp office hours my professor my economics professor at Berkeley was an Oxford guy, but he's from Argentina. And so like, you know, that juxtapositioning, right? Where like you have this place where inflation is like ridiculous, you know, like the money's absolutely useless, but here's this guy, you know, going on about Keynesian macroeconomic uh, interventions. And so that sort of deal. And like, Again, because he's like an Oxford guy holding my feet to the fire. Like at Berkeley, it's all about the gig and it's all about working. And so people would routinely not go to class. And there were a couple of times that like I would travel on business and miss his economics class. And like he got in, he got into it. He got into my, he got in my ass basically. I was trying to like not say that, but uh, he wasn't, he wasn't trying to hear any nonsense from me. And it was good. You know what I mean? I took a class in, I call it a history of the music city um, with uh, Professor Pecknick up there and like got a lot of the social history that I leverage now when I'm thinking about policy. So like, you know, people think, you know, they see music school on your resume and they're like, oh, he just like, you know, fooled around for like five years or whatever. But like it really was actually, you know, pretty, pretty robust and pretty thorough. Like it was, it was a good time. I, I would recommend it to folks that are that are self-disciplined and motivated. Yeah, I mean, I think you you said something right at the beginning of the story that struck me uh, because you were you said you were coming out of AI, and after high school, you know, you were sort of like you just had a mindset that you needed something that was different, 
And so you you got um, you know this beautiful liberal arts education, but it was seated in the arts. So it was seated in the creative arts. Uh, and so, yeah, that, it makes it, it's a, actually a great story. I'm glad I dug into it because I remembered seeing that sweatshirt that you were wearing. And I said, did you go to Berkeley? And I didn't really know anything about it. I just know that there are, are several, you know, fairly famous sort of music conservatories. And they're all kind of different. They all have like a different feel. Like the one in New York is like supposed to be a little stressful. And this one's river. Yeah, this one's very this. And so I was very interested, but we never were able to like have that had that 10 minute conversation so i i appreciate that yeah no i mean like you know always i'm always happy to talk about it i as you know like the east coast has sort of a reputation for having folks who are like heavy into credentials and name dropping so i'm now one of those people they're like oh yeah where'd you go to college i have this small school up small music school up in boston you know that that sort of deal but you know it is very, it is to your point, you know, one of, one of like the more elite programs. And like, there were a lot of, there were a lot of like successful people there. A lot of my friends are out doing cool stuff, you know, cool things right now. Unfortunately, they're, they're international. So I couldn't get them to like donate to my campaign, <laughs> but it's still, it's still cool to see on Instagram, you know? Well, let's talk about some cool stuff that you could be doing now. Um, and that you are doing now and that you'll proceed to do well into the future. Um, how did you, how did you decide, what were you doing? Um, and how did you decide that you were going to, uh, throw your hat in a ring and, and stand, um, and, and stand for this primary in the house in RD2? So, you know, I have been involved in, you know, youth services and youth advocacy honestly, since I was a youth, you know, I, my first job was working at Christina Cultural Arts under, uh, under Ken Brown and, and Ray, Ray Avery. So, you know, big, Ray, all... big Ray Avery shout out. I'm going to have to point that. Yeah, out. man. Everybody, yeah, man. Every, everybody has to. Like, I feel like there should be a position in Delaware called secretary of the arts and Ray Avery should have it. You know, like that should happen, you know, but getting, getting, getting back on track here, that was like my first job. And so going from, you know, seeing like my family care for kids and watching them in their professional capacity, care for kids, watching like Jay Street be probably the fiercest youth advocate that this state has ever seen, you know, and then having that as a first job. It, I kind of just got it honest. And like I said, my whole foray into the music business was about getting resources so that I could do the same thing. I taught, I taught music theory in Berkeley's, um, in Berkeley's outreach program when I was up there. And so what ended up happening was my grandfather passed away while I was completing my, my bachelor's degree up there, I worked at Atlantic for a little while and I came back to Delaware once I found out how, how rough the family was doing, you know, since his passing. And so I came back and I worked at Hilltop for a little while. And, you know, that contract was up and I went and worked for the Urban League doing college access for kids. And then I became a social worker 
And this is where the story kind of begins in earnest, right? Because I saw all sorts of craziness go down at DSS. And like, nobody cared. People proceeded as if this were like 100% normal. You know, I had I had a supervisor tell us that he wanted us to delete a bunch of cases, a bunch of applications, because he wanted to clear up the backlog and look good to the director. He said, well, you know, go ahead and delete those cases. And if the applicant calls, then pull them back up and process them per normal. And we were all looking at each other. And he said, um, you know, I'm not putting this in an email and I'm not going to uh, own up to it if anyone says that I gave gave this directive. And we said to him, yo, you know that like if we delete these cases, we can't pull them back up again. They'll just be gone and people have to reapply and they'll get pushed to the back of the line. He's like, I don't care. And this is like a prime example of the sort of thing that like was going on during my tenure there. You had social workers talking down to folks and you had people acting like it was their money. And, you know, full disclosure, I'm all about I'm all about fiscal accountability. I'm not fiscally conservative per se, but I am all about fiscal accountability. But like this was ridiculous. Well, let me ask let me ask you a question. I, as you know, or you probably know, just sat through a, a long trial process. And the 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 big the big picture of the trial was this idea that the state agency that had a particular function to do wasn't really operating properly for a bunch of different reasons. We won't get into it. I've talked about it enough. Um, but in the but in the um, in the course of uh, experiencing the story, we met a lot of people both through the trial and in social settings, sometimes both. Um, that are state bureaucrats. They're, they're accountants in the Department of Transportation. They're project managers in, or, you know, in the Department of Education. They're, you know, all of these different state bureaucrats. And on one hand, and I said this before, they all, they all seem to be pretty competent, some more than others, whatever, but there was, no, there was no widespread bureaucratic incompetence in any of the agencies. A lot of them were run terribly. And there was a real poor sort of uh, spirit de corps. Um, I don't know if it has to do with, like, we did talk a little bit about it, like, about just not, you know, taking cuts to your, take cuts to your pension, the 2% raise, whenever, you know, all of this stuff. Like, and is it just material conditions? But I just feel like a lot of these agencies that we rely on have some intrinsic thing holding them back from doing like the real work they could do. Yeah, sure. I mean, like, what do you, what do you think that is? What do so you think that is? I can speak to, I can speak to what I saw at social services and I can speak to like what I see in, you know, the department of finance where I work now, I'm in the unclaimed property office. And what it really is, is that, you know, the government doesn't really invest in getting the best people. And so you see that manifested in management 
luckily my office is like different. My my director is great, like she's awesome. But you know, the guy, the guy who was the director when I was at social services ended up being investigated by the Senate. It was so bad. The guy that that gave us this directive that I was just telling you the story about, he was thrown out of the the Senate hearing because they thought that he was fine. And so like when that's is this, is this a function of when you say they're not, you know, some of the middle managers are, are just not uh, adequate. Is this a function of just like pay and treatment part and benefits? Of it. It's part it's, it's largely is largely the pay and it's largely the philosophy around recruitment. And this is something that I actually want to address when I get down to Dover, because this, this is like, you know, drawing on my economics background now. This is what we call a coordination problem. You know what I mean? You have Wharton right up the road. You have UD down the street. You know, you have Goldie Beacom right, right there around the corner, but we're not really pulling on these schools. You have Hopkins, where I just got my degree down in D.C. You know, all these places are around. You can find good folks. And then there are other opportunities as well. Like in Wilmington, we're talking about the fact that the city government doesn't know what to do with these houses that they're holding. Fix them up and give them to whoever you want to recruit as a part of a compensation package. It's not rocket science. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, there, I guess my, my final thought on that would be that, yeah, it's not rocket science, but there's no, um, there's no political will to run the state well because what the idea is is to provide sort of the least amount of services and just enforce like enforce who gets them in a very difficult way and so i feel like really what it is is those decisions that we make where we're not recruiting uh good candidates we're not paying them well we're not setting them up like we set up bankers or whoever else comes in uh and so and so it's a, that that is just a decision that I think people don't really they don't give a lot of thought to um, state services, and so it, it, I'm hoping that somebody who comes in with your mindset would be able to would be able to do something with it. But I I don't think I, because I I really think that the architecture is there, like the structure is there. Because as you said, your your agency, your, your, the job you're doing is working pretty well. I know people, I, you know, I can give them shout outs. I know that they're really like high level. They're doing things the way I think can be done. Eugene Young at housing. Uh, Saran Cade at the OMB. Yeah, so I like I know I know where they're coming from, and so I give them a lot of slack, and I know that they're running it in a in a very professional way with politics sort of like i have as much as you can as much as you can and like that's the that's the thing i one thing that i will say you know and i hope i don't lose my progressive card because of this but i don't i don't even necessarily think that it's as sinister as we like to make it out to be what you have are people who got their education like back in the 70s and got their that did their walkabout in the 80s and now there's like a lack of imagination uh a fidelity to like very old thinking and a, a dearth of energy 
You know what I mean? And so, like, you can't, you don't have, like, the wherewithal, actually, to get better and fix these things. It's literally, they just need to get out of the way. These aren't evil people. They're just people whose time has passed, and they're still here, and they're very much out of place in this new time. You know, you take modern, just basic modern theory around compensation packages, and we could fix the staffing issues that would fix the coordination and management issues or the management issues that are at the heart of the coordination issues that our, our policy has right now. Yeah, I, 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 I jotted that down when you said it. There's a fidelity to very old thinking. That's really what it is. Because, because I agree with you. I, I don't I, – I, I said this going back to bringing it back to the, the trial and the auditor's office. I said this, but I mean this more broadly. I, I don't think anybody's really, really, really nefarious. I think some people behave terribly. I think some people – but I don't think that there's a coordinated effort. I, I just think it's like organizational problems, basically. I, I really do, and I think it has it has a lot to do with a lack of imagination or a lack of belief that time is moving on. I'll give you a prime example, Rob, and I've been saying this to people when I'm knocking the doors. I'm like, yo. Well, this is perfect because this, this was our segue into your big primary challenge because nothing I – don't, I don't think anything explains it better than what we just did for 25 minutes. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, like – I went through all of that stuff as a state worker, social services, and vowed that I would never come back. And then I just, that was how I like got into Network Delaware. I was working downtown visions just to like sort of decompress from years of being a social worker. And like, that was how I got involved. I left, did my master's degree in international relations and, and economics, you know, and at, at Hopkins, a year in Italy, a year in D.C., you know, did the did the obligatory work for like one of the the federal delegations since I was there, did some stuff with with think tanks in the defense industry. And then I came back and I was binding my business and then the children rioted. And when children riot, that means that the adults are completely off their game. And so, you know, I was looking at getting into the city council and then like they had a vacancy and somebody younger wanted to try to go through that process. And I figured rather than, rather than potentially bump heads, let this person do that since the city doesn't really elect young people. And like, I'll, I'll look at the primary and I was actually not even going to jump in it then until, you know, my opponent just, just was completely like belligerent with like the way she was voting. And so here we are, but a prime example, right, of what we're talking about. I came up on all of these programs. There were programs out the wazoo because the bank money was everywhere back in the day. And we just had folks that are old now and middle age back then. And so they were still with it. And so I had all the opportunity in the world, and it was both government funded and private sector funded. And my story happened because of that. What ended up happening was, though, there were certain there were certain folks that were running programs that shouldn't have been. And so they were pocketing money. They were hiring people that were related to them or that were like political acquaintances. And, you know, people like who are in power now seized on that as an opportunity to say, you know, the social service model doesn't work. 
there are program pimps running around. And so they cut the programs, crime raised that, crime increased at the same time. You know, all you had to do was take the Delaware Stars approach that they did with like daycares and slap that on, on like after school programming and things of that nature and bring the standards up and drive the crazies out. And kids would have something to do and we wouldn't have this nonsense going on. You know, but why have that conversation when you can just talk like a Republican? Yeah, so let's let's differentiate. Let's take some time to differentiate. Your opponent in this race, I think it's fair to say, has a fidelity to ver- a very old-fashioned thinking. There's a famous scene in The Godfather. Uh, oh, shout out to James Kahn. Yeah, oh, Jimmy Kahn. I mean, the best. There's a very great scene in The Godfather where uh, Michael Corleone goes to kill Salazzo and the and the the, the police uh, captain. <clears throat> And Salazzo is speaking to Michael at the restaurant in Italian. And he's trying to get this deal with this old man. But he knows this old man doesn't want the deal, so he's trying to negotiate with him. He doesn't know they're going to get their, bra- their brains blown out. And he's speaking to him in Italian, and he just says, uh, To a padre, your father, pensa antique. He says he has such an old-fashioned way of thinking. And I think about that little phrase in Italian all the time because we run, we're running into people not just in the city, but in the suburbs and in rural areas who just have this old-fashioned way of thinking. Uh, and, and that's what we have in, in Stephanie Bolton, in my opinion. Uh, I, 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 she was noticeably uh, absent uh, when the Adams Street uh, incident happened with that building. That was my understanding. I wasn't there, but my understanding from other people that were there never saw her. Uh, she's she's been very hostile to tenants' right to counsel. She had signed on to the eminent domain bill for for the city. Now again, Sarah McBride and Tizzy Lockman also signed on to it. And I should say, in all fairness, you got got. Now you you two should have fucking known better than to try to fucking slip a fast one on somebody. Do better. Tizzy Lachman and Sarah McBride, thank you. But 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 Bolden's been um, sort of in the pocket of big real estate, in my opinion, uh, and and in the in the cowardly move of all cowardly moves, changed her vote on uh, recreational marijuana on the veto override. Is that I, th- I believe she did. And, and just and and screwed us on that as well. So, uh, yeah. I mean, how are you, how are you setting yourself apart at the doors? What is it like uh, campaigning in an area where there is a, a very uh, well known uh, establishment figure who has a uh, who definitely has a constituency, a powerful constituency, uh, however you know strong or resilient it might be. So, what's that? What's that been like? So I think you I think you hit it on the head right there. She has a powerful constituency, but that powerful constituency isn't the people. Everywhere that I go that I'm knocking on doors, they either don't know who she is or they know who she is and they don't like her. And so, you know, the struggle for me has come in in that, like, you know, I have decided 
much to the chagrin of our our uh, our progressive fellows that I'm not taking money from anybody beneath the poverty line, and I'm not taking money from anybody that's going to want to control what I say when I get down to Dover. And so I've been like footing the bill for my campaign out of out of my own pocket, but like. You know, that's really been the biggest headache because, like, I can't go to some of these institutional places and get money. The unions are already sewn up, but that's that's where her power lies. Like, I'm I've been joking with like folks that are working on my campaign. I might beat her just putting my name on the on the ballot. <laughs> you know, it's like people are people are either saying things like, you know, she's horrible. She calls the cops on us for being outside. And like I've heard constituents on the east side say this repeatedly and it's intergenerational, which is very scary. Like there are people who have these stories from back in the 90s. There are people who have these stories as recent as like a couple years ago. Then when I'm in other parts of the district, they're like, well, who is she? Or, yeah, I know who she is. And like. She's okay, but she needs to go. We need new blood. And so at this point, like, it's not even really a big headache. It's just a matter of, you know, getting out, knocking the doors and praying to God that, you know, time doesn't sort of run out. You know what I mean? Because I did get a late start and I did have like three knee surgeries. So, you know, yesterday was like a prime example of this. I definitely was laid up a little bit. Like I came in expecting to take a cat nap and to maybe get out and do some canvassing. And I'm knocked out, man. I, I didn't wake up until like nine 30 at night, but yeah, it's, it's fine, man. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad. Uh, Cause, because I know everybody's uh, when, when people really want to, uh, well, I'll put it this way. Uh, Kowalko said something when he gave his, uh, his remarks uh, on the last day of the session. And as, uh, as uh, pendants will say, he's still technically the, the rep, uh, although they're not in session, but he gave his farewell remarks. And uh, <clears throat> he said that his only constituency was the public interest. And it was, it was the absolute perfect way uh, to phrase it. As always, he went out in fucking style um, but when you do that, like you're doing it, it's, it's, uh, it's tricky. Everybody has to do it sort of differently. Um, yeah, I mean, you're in a different, um, you know, there's different conditions in the, your neighborhood. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm always interested in, uh, I'm glad that people are already coming out to you know, support you. Um, what, what else can, what else do you have scheduled? Like, um. Where else can people sort of look you up and get involved in this uh, if they're in the city or outside the city and want to work on a campaign that would actually make a huge amount of difference, uh, as we said, and, and we've talked about um, James's opponent here. I don't think it's any uh, surprise to tell you this would be a massive – you can make massive change doing this. Oh, oh my God. I mean, like, <sighs> let, me, let me jump in, you know what I mean? Because, like, to your point – the conditions are different, you know, like in the black community, you don't, even when it's time to like challenge your elders, you don't, you don't do anything that might be 
disrespecting your elders. And let me be clear, you know what I mean? Back in the 90s when I was a kid growing up, you know, Stephanie was solid on a lot of things. And, like, she gave black women something to look up to in the city. And I, I will respect that, you know, until the day I die. But, you know, it's time. Right now, if all, if the only thing that happens is that the black caucus is freed up to do some of the things that they want to do without having to worry about, you know, Stephanie's like kind of unofficial but official veto on things, that alone would be like worth the, the price of, of ever involvement somebody might want to render to the campaign. So like, definitely want to underscore that point like helping helping uh madam representative into her retirement her richly deserved retirement uh would be huge for the state of delaware but um you can you can get involved just by going to my website you know check out the platform it's 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 as robust as as is permissible given the circumstances you know, that I'm running under. Um, yeah. And Carl will link to uh, all the, all the pertinent uh, details in the show notes for sure. Yeah. You know, um, you know, you can reach, you can find us and volunteer by getting, jumping on the contact us page. Um, as always, like, you know, donations are, are appreciated again, per, uh, you know, a, Given, given like the two guidelines I've laid out, like if you're below the poverty line, you know, maybe maybe phone bank for us or something like that. If you're like a special interest, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Um, but yeah, just like the website is the best way to get a hold of us right now. But, I, you know, I, I definitely would like to get into more of like some of these special conditions that you touched on. Yeah, feel free. So. You know, in addition to there being like these sort of social rules, like in the black community, there are economic, uh, there are economic realities over there. There are political, political and historical realities as well. You know, what I mean, and so like one of the, one of the the things or the conversations that's always that's ongoing, and around electioneering is how like some of the standard the standard what I call Madison Avenue tactics of like political campaigning don't really apply in black neighborhoods in the first place, because, you know, when those things were coined and developed, black folks weren't a part of like the data sets, you know, that were being observed that these, these strategies and tactics were extrapolated from. And two, when those things were put into place, they were never really tested in those areas. You know, if you think about it, we're talking about the area, the era of Mad Men, right? Um, I can't remember the guy's name, um, like the main character from Mad Men. Don Draper. Don Draper. Yeah, like Don Draper and crew. If you remember, like. They were perplexed as to why black people were protesting outside their window. And it was so that, you know, one, they could be in these places where these decisions were being made. And two, so that the folks that were making the decisions would view them as part of, you know, the target audience. And so, like, that's just like 
uh, a sort of like, you know, back of the envelope kind of illustration through like this, this show that everybody knows. And so like, you know, that's something that's always top of mind. I can go down and knock on doors and I can say whatever it is, I can send the mailer and all of this stuff. But at this point, that community is rightly cynical. And so like, you're not going to come through with this sort of like, you know, you know, uh, this like Girl Scout cookie selling approach to politics and like pick pick these communities up. And uh, it's also worth noting that like code switching is huge. You know, what someone will tell someone that is from the community and the the amount of openness that that will be there with, um, you know, someone that's from the community and like what folks how, how community members will react to someone who's from without the community is different. And so, like, these things haven't quite made their way into, uh, you know, strategy sessions in the progressive community yet. And so, like, that's something, that's something that I'm fighting with. I think the other place where, like, these dynamics are interesting is in policymaking itself. You know what I mean? Like, there's sort of a a list and a pecking order of issues um, on the progressive side. And the, the, the frank reality is that black folks don't care about a lot of that stuff. You know what I mean? Like when you're trying to figure out where your next meal is going to come from or whether or not you're going to make, you know, the rent payment or like the childcare payment or whatever other payment, whether or not there's gas in your car at the moment, you know, you're probably not sitting around thinking about the downstream benefits of, of passing the Green New Deal. And so, you know, that's another like sort of point of tension. You know, and it's like that's why I, I'm very much leaning into to circle back to your original question, you know, my economic background and sort of addressing uh first order concerns for people, you know, on like Maslow's hierarchy. I'm I'm focused on inflation because people need their money to go farther. And so, like, I talk about what Bacini, Pollen and and the mayor are doing from that perspective. Because, like, that that facades and fixtures development strategy causes inflation, which makes people's money not not do, you know, as much as, as it could otherwise. Well, I think you'd call it, um, I mean, that's just classic gentrification, really. I mean, yeah, however you frame it, uh, the fact is that people get, uh, they're, they're, they're priced out of their neighborhood just by, by, by total just choice of where we're going to build apartments and fancy bars for and candle pin bowling and bar day, a steak and all that stuff. Wherever they decide to build that, um, you can't afford rent anymore. And, and that's it. Like, however you explain that, like, and I don't even think, you know, again, message it however it needs to be messaged, but that's not even inflation. Really. That's, um, that's no, but it is inflation, right? Because I guess to, to, I mean, if if it's a cost of living for people, that's really what it is to them. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's, it's inflation. And like, the scary part is that, like, it intersects with other issues. Like, we all know that there's a food desert in Wilmington. You know, what 
where where people don't make the connection, especially like these older older politicians, um, is that if you put in the facades and fixtures and you lay the the, the sheetrock just right, so that you can say that it's modern, and then you jack the rent up three times, the the you know the the justifiable price. Well, then once you deemed it luxury. Folks who aren't even a part of that particular cabal will say, well, based on uh, based on rents in the area, we're going to raise our price, too. That affects business owners. Business owners pass that rent increase on to the customers by way of price increases. And then since like Justice and Landing is part of of like this business improvement district, that they have going on, not technically, but like it's part of like that strip. Well, I mean the the the, the land that the the uh, Sixers facility is on wasn't technically part of the city, but you know how that you know how that you know how that works, right? Exactly, and so like since it's all part of like the same strategic development area, you know, magically like you see your your you see the groceries go up because the market will bear it quote unquote. And like, this is, this is what I mean. It's very sneaky. And then when you bring it up, they'll say, oh, well, it's economic headwinds. It's the stress test that our supply chain has been under because of COVID. It's all of these things, except, you know, the policy that we passed and what, what it amounts to is homegrown inflation. And then to your point, after a while, when people can't afford anything in the area, they leave willingly or like they are just straight up priced out because they can't afford rent. What the what the establishment dims, I won't even go that far. I I will just like you know be explicit at this point. What my uh, the way my opponent is messaging this is, you know, people are talking about gentrification, but that has never happened because like no you know no black folks have been moved out of their house and white people replaced them. They're framing it as they they're framing gentrification as like a racial issue, and I'm framing it as an economic issue in this sort of weird reversal. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I, I think that that's exactly the correct analysis. Um, I I will say this, uh, which is to say nothing, uh, just to point people in the direction uh, of someone who's written a lot about sort of um, elites in this uh, like that have a constituency in these uh, districts and, and, and these places, uh, you know, sort of black political elites. Uh, Pascal Robert, uh, his work can be, his, his work can be found in black agenda report. Uh, this is revolution podcast. He actually did a podcast with yours truly about maybe four months ago on a piece he wrote in Newsweek about this very thing. Uh, so I won't make any arguments other than to say uh, the argument he, he makes in Newsweek and that he made on the Highlands Bunker podcast uh, is salient and it explains exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, I'm trying to break this stuff down, you know, because, like, I remember being in those econ classes, like, it'll make your head spin and your eyes roll in the back of your head while it's spinning. So I'm trying to break it down, you know, into like this sort of bite-sized capsule. But it really is that kind of domino effect. You know what I mean? And like folks 
don't pay attention to it and it happens over a prolonged time horizon and so people don't notice it but like this is where this is where it's coming from every time you see you know to your point like a, a bardea or something like that open up your your eyebrows should lift and then your ears should should perk up to hear whether or not your representative your representative official um your elected official i should say is saying anything about it and like what it's going to do to you down you know down the line we haven't heard anything we haven't heard a blessed thing you know but why why would we if you think that eminent domain is a tool that you can use to 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 uh affect crime <laughs> and to decrease crime in your in your neighborhood like why why would you think that you know this sort of economic engineering is is uh is problematic yeah i i'll say this to, to sort of close on something and just draw this distinction um we don't have to make this sort of like a personal thing the fact of the matter is just like we talked about in state government almost some of these elected officials i don't believe think there's any other way maybe they think because they have uh they have antique thinking they think well this is all we can do we have development and we're bringing in development so the fact that your rent went up 150 bucks and your your food and some of your other necessities went up 100 bucks and now gasoline for your car is up. So now you're strapped. The fact that you didn't have to move out of your house so rich people could move in is really, that's fake. That's not what we're talking about. So any, anybody talking about that is, uh, is, 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 is out of it. But again, I think people like uh, Stephanie Bolden, I think people like Namdi, who's getting, he, he's going to get his, I think, uh, by the time this, no, I don't, uh, well, let's just say whether this comes out before or after this is happening, it's happening. Watch it, Namdi, because you're in the same situation uh, as Stephanie Bolden's in. But again, I think they come by it honestly. I don't think they they have they have a lack of imagination. I think is what, how you referred to it earlier. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, God. What's the guy's name? I can't. The economist that used to. Uh, the economist that advised Reagan and uh, uh, the Iron Lady, the first 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 female uh, um, Thatcher, Thatcher, yeah. Milton Friedman. Oh, uh, Milton still, Friedman, big Chicago still, guy. Yeah. yeah, they're still working off of like Milton Friedman economics, despite the fact that even people on Wall Street, to a certain degree, have moved on. Like, there, we're looking at environmental, social, and governance metrics on Wall Street because we acknowledge that Milton Friedman's thinking was wrong. But here in Delaware, folks are still very much tied to that that mode of thought. And like, you know, I'm here to kick the tires a little bit and to question that thinking. You know, whether I end up winning my election or not, I need Stephanie Bolden and, and you know, her her contemporaries and her colleagues to come forward and explain their thinking. How do you justify 
economic development that is supposed to do things like raise GDP that we will ostensibly like, you know, redistribute for the good of the community by damaging the community itself. It, 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 it just doesn't follow. You know what I mean? You know, why, why, if you, if, if you're Mike Perzicki and your argument is we have to give people uh, home ownership so that they have like an ownership interest and then like they'll care, and they'll want to, you know, either stop or not engage in crime. Then like, how do you think that making them worse off and as you, as you put it, Rob, making them cash trapped is like going to not lead to crime. Someone, I need, I need one of these so-called adults to step forward and explain their thinking. Well, I think, I think you explained it uh, perfectly. It's a, it's a lack of imagination. They don't have any other thinking. It's the Friedman thinking. It's like, look, we have to, we have to, we have to uh, bring development, corporate real estate development, fancy stuff for rich people. Uh, you know, and, and that's like, that'll do something for the tax base. And then we'll put, we'll give Amazon money to put a plant out in in Boxwood to hire forklift drivers for $19 an hour. We'll give them money to do it. Uh, and that's how, that's how, that's how we get there. And I have, I have very bad news for probably not a people not a lot of people listening to this that's actually not how we do it it doesn't work this is why it hasn't worked and this is why we're in the predicament that we're in right now the the mistress i've i've been calling it the mistress model of economic development some that, big but, business, some yeah. big business comes to delaware we you know we we jump into bed with them have a good time for a little while they leave, and then in the morning, we have to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm very happy that all of these things are happening. Because, uh, really, it's just a matter of believing that we can operate politics and the state bureaucracy and the economic growth that the state generates and we can operate that a different way if we want to. The idea that we can't is ridiculous. Um, the idea that there's only one way to do it is should seem to people to be nonsense. Uh, but for some reason, they have a very difficult time imagining their way out of it. Um, but this can happen. And this is the kind of thinking and the kind of... Uh, the kind of things people should be organizing around in their community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I, I tend to give, I tend to give lay people, you know, a pass because they're working every day trying to survive. If you're a politician or a policy figure, your whole job is to sit back and work these problems out. It's to dream this stuff up. So like, how do you justify you know, not properly thinking through things. And that's why I say, like, you know, it's time for some fresh ideas down in Dover. It's time for for new energy, you know? And, like, that's really what it comes down to. Like I said, we have all these resources. Anyone who's actually in touch with, you know, 
the thinking of, you know, the millennial and the Gen Z generation and even Gen X to a large degree. You know, folks, folks are kind of over the rat race. We're trying to get back to like a more manageable pace of life. And Delaware is, is like specially positioned to offer people that. But we're so busy trying to be Philadelphia or trying to be Baltimore that we're not capitalizing on our true competitive advantage, even with things like the port. You know, if we actually train the workforce such, you know, to such that they could staff the port, we'd be in a very good place precisely because we don't have, we don't, you, you don't pay tribute to use our port. You know what I mean? Meanwhile, we're we're in this horrible deal with uh, with Golf Tainer. I want to I want to yes, I want to give a shout out to um, a friend of mine and friend of the podcast uh, and friend of local journalism, uh, Carl Baker. Uh, Carl is obviously a close friend of my friend Lex as well. Uh, he's from the area. Um, he's uh, Going uh, back to his hometown to uh, to have a, a a memorial for his father who uh, who passed away suddenly, and I'm, but I it, but I'm I'm glad his dad was a Buddhist, and so they they made every uh, preparation to do sort of this Buddhist ceremony. Lex went out to it. Um, I'm just I'm very excited for him. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to Carl Baker. Uh, for that, uh, we're thinking about you. Good vibes to you. Also, also, he just dropped a very long story before he went out of town about this very thing. Because he, like I, don't think you should be giving away your public good, still paying into it to try to juice it so you can, like... You're still, yeah, I mean, you're going through three middlemen to privatize everything. You're still juicing the thing because you just don't want to, uh, you don't want to believe that that can be run by the state of Delaware as a money-making enterprise. You just don't want to, you don't want to believe it's possible. This is a prime example of what I'm talking about, though. You would rather, you would rather hand it off to somebody else so that, you know, when it's losing money, or when it's not being run correctly, the blame isn't on you. The heat is on somebody else. See, if Golf Tainer is holding it and they're mismanaging it now, then you can say, oh, well, you know, they didn't live up to their end of the deal. That's not on us, but it is on you because you're the one that brokered the deal. So take it back and, like, learn how to run your, you know, your your port. And, like, again, it's it's not really... It's not really rocket science. It's, again, a matter of recruiting the people that know how to do these things and then putting the investment where it should go. Because to your point, Rob, we're, we ended up giving Golf Tainer economic relief because this company that runs ports as its business somehow wasn't prepared for like an event that anybody that's involved in shipping should have seen coming. If you're in shipping and you're going from port to port, you know what the what the stresses are and like what the risks are. Why weren't you properly in, insured for them? You know what I mean? And so like 
this this these are the sort of things that I don't hold the average voter accountable for not knowing. These are the things that I hold our legislators accountable for not asking about. Yeah, and I just hope people understand this kind of stuff as a as a as a way to shake them out of their uh, sort of traditional thinking or like status quo thinking. Like you're conditioned to believe that giving away public stuff to private people. And it's so funny, like the Emirati firm is actually running it through another firm and they're getting a bunch of contractors to work. It's the same thing with the Amazon plant. They're union busting down yeah, there right now. Amazon, the, the, the actual physical facility and land, Amazon rents from like, it's been like three different, uh, three different firms uh, around the world. Like I think one of them was an Australian firm. You have to look it up, but it's all, we just give stuff away and we say, well, as long as you employ X number of, you know, uh, of, of machine operators and, and warehouse people that are non-union for $15 an hour or $19 an hour, that's good enough. That's what we're paying for. And I, and I think that's, uh, you know, people need to be some somehow some of I'm hoping that although people, as you said, are not going to be like down with listening to this port story. I just hope people understand when you tell them stuff like this, that they uh, they see that there's a material uh, sort of impact on them. And it's all in how we message you. Right. I mean, like, I think I think the average person can understand, like, you know, the executive branch couldn't run this uh the executive branch couldn't run this port they didn't want to look like they couldn't run the port so they gave it to somebody else to mess up and like you know part of the condition was that there would be a community benefits agreement and now somebody else is messing it up and we're not getting the community benefits agreement honored and we're paying for the privilege of having them mess it up because we have to pop them up. <laughs> that's that's the like you know it's all about the simple messaging. That that's that's literally the story in a nutshell. James, thanks for doing this. I apologize for the uh, all the technical problems, but thanks for for coming in and uh, and yeah, this is happening. Pr- these primaries are happening all over the place. So when you read stuff about how. Uh, a lot of these representatives and state senators are sort of corporate real estate people tied to big real estate, tied to corporate capital interests, um, tied to private interests. We can get them out. We can keep them out. That can happen. And so we, we can elect people that have the imagination to build the structures necessary to create the world that, like, the state and the world that we want to live in. Uh, James, thanks again. And uh, thanks all the new patrons that we've had. We hope you stick with it. We're going to have a lot of fun going forward. We're probably going to cover this, uh, this Twitter V Elon Musk thing in chancery court. So get ready for that. Uh, We've we're we're hiring the big guns. We're already burning up the, uh, burning up the, the, the Twitter sphere to hire big guns for that. So, Uh, Thanks for your patronage. Keep hitting us up on Patreon if you can, because we're going to do more stuff like that. Um, But for now, support James Taylor, support these insurgent candidates, and left is best.